The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Um, when I first got here, there was like one car in the parking lot, and I thought, well, I'm going to be talking to Mark Pearson for the first hour, so that shouldn't be too difficult. Um, you know, normally this is not how we do church, so if you guys are visiting this morning, this is completely different. We um, typically we do an expository pattern where we take verse by verse and we do an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book. And if you've grown used to that, like I have, when you do something topical or you hear a topical sermon, it almost becomes frustrating because you don't really understand the context of what's going on um, and, and it feels a little bit more um, uh, not true to the text. So I'm going to try to give uh, some contextual clues uh, as well as going through the passage today. But... Um, so when Tracy, uh, we decided to do the sabbatical, certainly that left 10 weeks of, um, of time where people needed to preach. And so when they asked me to preach on holy, I thought, well, that's, uh, that's awfully easy. Um, but I, I thought, okay, well, that I, we can, I'll do whatever you want me to do because I thought it was important that he have some time off. And so when he asks me to preach, um, typically the first thing I do is just pray and, and just ask the Lord, you know, what, what do you want to have come across in this time? What do you want, what do you want the people of North Ferry Community Church, what do you want them to hear? Um, and just help me stay out of the way. Um, and in that, I was really, really burdened, probably personally um, for my family and just for my church family. Um, I, was, I was burdened for our people group. You know, th- this, is not a, uh, this is not a church family that's spending tons of time meeting one another's basic needs. You know, we, we all have food, shelter, and way more uh, stuff than we possibly could need. But what, what can transform us from being the casual Christian, you know, the, the family that 99% of people in Shreveport, Louisiana, say that they're Christians and put some church in their church box? What can transform us from that people group to a pre, to a people group that really loves the Lord, understands God's holiness, and lets that affect and impact our actions. So that was um, that that was what I was burdened for before I even started. And so you know, when you think about that, you think, well, w- what are we passionate about, right? What well, I mean, everybody's passionate about different things. Probably almost everyone here is passionate about LSU in some way. Um, but one thing that, that, that I think is bad in our culture is we get super, super passionate about these good things, but yet not, um, not passionate at all when it comes to, to the holiness of God and when it comes to the work of Jesus Christ. You know, to tell a story on myself, and I see McDowell back there, so that's a buddy of mine who I didn't know was going to be here this morning, so he can speak to this, but I'm very, very passionate about uh, the the kids and the stuff they're involved in. So it's so much so that you can take something good and make it bad, you know. And so a few years ago, actually, uh, Coach McDowell and I uh, got these kids together and decided we were going to make a basketball team. So we um, we had to go to different parts of town. We had to go out to the Cooper Road to find some kids. We had to go to Allendale and find some kids. But we found some kids and we put them in this uh, basketball tournament, the Martin Luther King tournament. So we're playing and so we get together that morning. They introduce me to one of the other dads who now is a very good friend of mine named Maurice Green, who's about 6'3", mm, maybe? 6'3". Uh, uh, and so he, 
um, he and I were sitting in the stands together because uh, Chad was coaching him. And so we're playing in this tournament, and uh, it's pretty tight coming down the stretch. And Henry gets the ball on the wing and goes goes into the lane and steps through two defenders and makes a shot. And, you know, and I'm super, super happy, right? Like the crazy dad that you laugh at on the sideline, that is me. Um, and so the, the, the right then the whistle blows. And I'm like, wait, what? And the guy calls travel. And, and so we're at Lakeside Gym, which is, you know, shares a parking lot with Booker T. Washington. And so I stand up. I mean, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. There's not even anybody there. So I stand up. And I look at the ref and I scream at the guy like a crazy person. And I say, the only reason that you call the travel is because he looks different than everybody else on the court. And then I thought, did I seriously just say that? And, and I'm thinking, and so then it hits me that Maurice, who is sitting next to me, who looks the same as everyone else on the court except for Henry. Um, I, I'm like, and, and he doesn't even know me. And I'm thinking... How did I end up in this position? Well, thankfully, Maurice looks at the ref and says, he's right, ref. You're profiling. You're profiling. <laughs> so, so, but why are we so passionate about that type of thing? But yet when I sit in here every week, sometimes I think, man, I don't want Tracy to see me yawn. Or I think, you know, how much, how much should I cut the corner at number one at Southern Trace, or should I just play to the middle of the fairway? My mind is other places. It's not, it's not focused on God's Word. And so, um, so I leaned on several different uh, sources for this. Um, you know, I, I used John MacArthur. I used R.C. Sproul's, um, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology, so in preparation for this. But the person I leaned on the most heavily is a guy named David Platt who wrote that book, Radical, which if you've never read, never read it, don't, because it will like completely convict you and change your life and make you do crazy stuff. Um, but anyway, the, we're, I'm going to start with a quote um, from Jonathan Edwards that I think really um, just speaks to this about where our passions lie. Uh, it says, he says, Our external delight, our earthly pleasures, our ambition, our reputation, our human relationships... For all of these things, our desires are eager and our appetites strong. Our hearts are tender and sensitive when it comes to these things. We're easily moved, deeply impressed, and greatly engaged. We are depressed in our losses and excited and joyful about our worldly successes and prosperity. But when it comes to spiritual matters, how dull we feel, how heavy and hard our hearts. We sit and hear of the infinite height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, and yet be unmoved. If we are going to be emotional about anything, shouldn't it be our spiritual lives? Is anything more inspiring, more lovable, and desirable in heaven on earth than the gospel of Jesus Christ? We should be utterly humbled that we are not more emotionally affected than we are in the church. Um, so really, that's my... That's my prayer for our time together today is that we'll really look at the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and really realize the work that was done on the cross. You know, it's not it's not an ornament that we didn't have anything else to put up back here. It the saving work of Christ should affect us and it should call us to action. Um, my girls are not here this service, but Angie has a tablet, which is good. So I'm going to I'm going to give you all the quick outline. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to touch on four points. Um, the first is we have an incomprehensibly great God. Uh, the second 
is we are sinfully depraved people. And the third is we have a scandalously merciful Savior. And finally, the fourth is we have an indescribably urgent mission. So if you're taking notes, those are the four, those are the four Roman numerals, if you will. Um, so let's, let's talk about, I'm going to break this passage down into uh, four parts that correspond to those four points. So we're, we'll start with um, the, uh, the first couple of verses. Uh, Isaiah 6, we're reading from, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I find it very difficult sometimes when I'm looking at a different version and, uh, to follow. But nonetheless, you, you can just listen and I'll read. Um, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, for some context here, you know, Isaiah was a prophet. This is in the Old Testament. This is many, many, many years prior to Jesus. Um, and the, Isaiah opens his book with, several of his prophecies that come from a little later. But, and so in Isaiah 6, really this is his initial call from God. So what had happened here, um, Uzziah was a king, a king of the southern kingdom of Israel. So, you know, um, a lot of times people have heard of the Babylonian Empire and Israel, and I always tell the kids and youth, Israel is such a difficult term. It can mean a country, it can mean part of a country, it can mean a people group, it can mean the current day Israel. So, so what we're talking about um, here is Israel was divided up into two parts. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had been taken over by the Assyrians. So this is all before uh, Babylon had come in and taken over, before Daniel and all that stuff. And so they were kind of confined to a smaller area. Um, and Uzziah was a king. Um, he had been a king for 52 years um, of the southern kingdom. And he had been a good king. Um, he had followed the Lord, the... the uh, the people of Israel had prospered during his time. Their borders had expanded. And so, um, for the most part, um, it was a good time in their history. Now, at the end of Uzziah's life, he tried to make himself a priest. And, you know, he was struck with leprosy. So, the last little portion of his life um, was not good. But for the majority of his time, um, the, the people were prosperous. You know, much like, much like the people that are sitting in here. Um, and so things had been good. And so that, that is really important because that's where uh, God approached Isaiah. And, and that's why he's describing um, in this vision himself on a throne with a train that covers the entire temple. Because what he's saying to Isaiah through this, um, through this revelation is, Uzziah was just a king. I mean, 52 years is a long time, right? I mean, it's longer than... Uh, it's, it's longer than President Obama was president. It's longer than Trump's going to be president. It's, it's longer than that kind of stuff. But relative to a holy God who is a king all the way in the past, who's a king currently in the, in the present and will be all the way in the future, you don't, there's, no, there's no need to worry. You know, there, it, there's not a problem. Those, those kings, um, whether it's Uzziah or Trump, they're all just just pieces in God's hand. And so that's an amazing biblical truth that, that if you know someone that's going to be in charge always, um, 
that's, a, that's completely separate. You know, that's, that's what Tracy said. I asked Tracy, what should I say? He said, you should go up there and say holiness is separate from us and drop the mic and walk off. And I started to think, maybe he's been on sabbatical too long, Jerry. I don't know. Uh, but, but truly, that is something that's very, very difficult for us to comprehend. Um, but that's, what, that's the depiction of what's going on here. And then what is a seraphim, right? I don't, I'm very, I don't even like science fiction movies. It's very hard for me to, to really get a grasp of what that means. But essentially what, what that is, is it's, a, it's an angel that's on fire for the, the in reverence to God. And so the, the, reason why, uh, the reason why the seraphim has two of its wings over its face is that God is so holy that even an angel that is, um, that is on fire for Christ can't look directly at him. Um, and the reason he has the two wings over his feet is that he's in a humble position of service that he's unworthy even to carry out God's plan. And I just don't know that I, don't know that I see myself in that light. Um, and I'm certainly not an angel on fire for the Lord. Um, you know, we... That's such an amazing posture of reference or of reverence, and we see that anytime um, people in the Bible encounter God, whether it's Peter or Job, I mean, there there literally is a trembling um, that goes along with just encountering God. Um, and so, what what does the what do they what what do these angels that are on fire for the Lord? What do they say? They say, holy, holy, holy. And so what, you know, that's the, what's the essence of the text? That's the essence of the text, that God is holy. So what does that mean? So a couple of things here, you know, this came from the Hebrew to the Greek to the English. So the fact that it's repeated three times is, um, is, is the same way we would use in a text message, rows and rows of exclamation points, right? And so it's a, it's, it's used for emphasis. It's not a mistake. It's not a reprint. You know, there's some conjecture on whether or not it's holy for the for God and holy for Jesus and holy for the Holy Spirit. But but the the purpose of it is it's to it's emphasis. And so and the other thing that's interesting is and I it really as I have you ever listened much to R. C. Sproul's? That's a smart guy. But um, the and, and hearing him kind of ferret out this from the original language, I don't know that when I read it from the English Standard Version that it um, really resonated with me correctly. What's happening here is you have the seraphim on both sides, and you can learn more about this uh, in Revelation chapter 4 as far as like the number of seraphim. It's not like two, it's, it's a lot, but they don't, they're not real specific on the number. But it's, a, it's like a chanting from one seraphim to another, you know, holy, holy. Holy, and they're going back and forth. It reminds me very much of, you know, being at an LSU football game. You know, on Saturday night at 10 o'clock, an SEC game is the, the third largest city in the, in the state. And, and there's an electricity in that stadium. Have y'all, have y'all, has everybody been to that and seen that? I mean, if you've not seen it, Kevin may have never been there. Yeah, he's like, what are you talking about? So, but the, the, if you've been there, there's an electricity and a passion that makes grown people act crazy. Um, and that's, that's in all of 19-year-old boys moving a ball back and forth over a line, 
right? I mean, and no offense, they're awfully big guys, most of them, and, and, I've, and it's fun. It's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not condemning LSU football. Don't, don't, don't mishear me. But that's what they're talking about. So, so compare, that is very separate, as Tracy would say, that is very separate than angels singing back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, that, and I think that should impact us. We should, we should really, that should help us recognize that, wait a second, we use this term all the time, God, and we, we really talk a lot about His transcendent nature and, you know, what would Jesus do and God's my homie and whatever. Um, but that's completely different than the picture that Isaiah saw when, in, in this vision of God. That's different than... Um, you know, Moses being out in the desert and having to put his shoes on and put his face to the ground when he sees the burning bush. I mean, that the, 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 um, I think certainly thinking about Jesus and how he is part man and part human helps us um, bridge that gap to some extent. But let's make no mistake about it. The text is clear. God is holy and God is separate. And so what else does that mean? That, that means that God is perfect. Um, and, and that's a hard thing to, to, to think about. That means He's never made a mistake. He's never had a wrong thought. Um, and, and, and He's never going to have a wrong thought. And He's never had a wrong motivation. Well, that, that's an easy thing to say. But when you really think about the application of that, that really should impact us, right? So David Platt was, was talking about this. And, and I, I never really thought of it like this. But that means... Everything that happened is correct. So just let that sink in for a minute. Everything that's happened is correct. So all the difficult things that have happened in your life, all of the things that you've perceived as mistakes, all of the shortcomings that you have, all of the losses that you've suffered, all of those things are correct. Um, And that's... um, that's a super, super difficult thing to wrap our mind around um, because a lot of things that happen feel wrong and they hurt. Um, but ultimately, what a blessing it is to know that they're right um, because that way you know that we're not the result of chance. You know, Jennifer, when we, when we first got married, anytime I would say something was lucky, she would say, there's no such thing as luck. And I would be like, that is so annoying. Stop saying that. But truly, it's... It should impact us. There's no such thing as luck, right? I mean, if God is ultimately in control, if he's completely omniscient, if he's never wrong, then that means there's no such thing as luck. Um, And even though that can make us, um, in some respects, struggle and be angry with God, um, it also can help us realize the things that happen to me and the things that happen in my life and the things that I encounter, they have purpose, um, and, and that's ultimately, I think, at the end of the day, having been through things that are difficult, um, I think that's a blessing. Although sometimes it's a real struggle um, when you're in the midst of it. But I think ultimately it's a blessing. Um, so, you know, so what happens when something's the ultimate, right? Then, then everybody tries to do one of two things, either compare themselves to it or, or knock, it, knock it off. And so, um, you know... Isaiah is real clear uh, later in his book when you when you look in chapter forty um, verses twenty five and twenty six 
God speaks to this when people try to compare themselves or make themselves equivalent. That's another concept of holiness. There is no equivalent. And so, and, and, and so God is responding to that challenge that, hey, there's an equal. Um, and God says in verse 25, To whom will you compare me? Or who is equal? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created these? Who brings the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. You know, I I don't know that much about astrology, but I do have a degree in science. And I know enough to know there's billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. There's billions of galaxies And so, you know, the multiple there is infinite, right? And yet God knows every single one. Um, And He, just like He knows every grain of sand, just like He knew us us before the world was ever created. You go to the first chapter of Ephesians. the, 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 The fact that He knows that, the fact that He knows everything, um, it should get our attention. It should affect our actions, not... Not just on Sunday morning for an hour. You know, we, we, it's so much greater than anything we encounter that it should have an impact on everything we do. Um, and, and, if there, and if there's a challenge to that, that you know, the, the first thing when you look at something great, someone wants to say they're equal. The second thing is someone wants to challenge it or kind of knock it off. So, you know, back contextually what's going on here in Isaiah the Assyrians had come in and taken over the northern kingdom. And so the, they were kind of running roughshod through the world, just doing what they wanted. And so the Assyrian king, um, if you look in Isaiah 37, I won't read it directly, it's take too long, but um, he's, he's basically challenging Hezekiah, who's the king at that time, saying, listen, your God can't save you. Nobody can save you from the Assyrians. Don't you see we're running, we're, we're plundering um, all the countries were doing what we want, and we're going to go down and take over Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. And so he sends 185,000 troops down, um, and they surround um, they surround the city of Jerusalem. And you know what God does with that? 185,000 troops drop dead in one in one night. So you know it's not the Battle of Jericho. Nobody's marching around with horns. Nothing. Just bang. Done. Um, so I think God is super, super clear that there is no equal and, and there's no reason to challenge him. Because certain, you know, and then if you go on to read what happens to the Assyrian king, you know, he ends up going, you know, when that happens, what do you do? Well, you go back to Assyria, right? And so he goes back to Assyria and then his two sons end up killing him. And so the, the, those, are, the, those are two positions I don't think, I think it's very clear biblically we don't want to take. We don't want to think that there's a there's an equivalent to God, and we don't want to think that we're better that or that we can take over um, something that God's in charge of. So that brings us to my second point. You know, when we look at the second part of this verse um, or these verses, and it says, "And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called." And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's happening here is Isaiah is, you know, initially 
you have this reverence for the holy God. And then what he's, what he's encountering second is, wow, if God is over here and so holy, I am over there, so unholy, so sinful. So I like the NIV translation better. It says that he's, he describes himself as undone. Um, and so I, that, that is an amazing reality for us because I don't think that um, I don't think that as the people or as the Googes for sure, and I probably can speak for the people of Norse Ferry Church and this area, we don't really see ourselves as sinful as we are. You know, we're pretty good people, right? I mean, we're better than this guy or better than that guy. Or we put some money in the collection plate or we, you know, we do some volunteer work. And so we highlight our... Um, our pros and minimize our cons. And, and yet, I think there's many, many biblical examples of what happens when people encounter God. You know, the, the classic example is Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Um, Genesis chapter 19. Have you all read that in a while? Like, I read that. And it's, uh, <laughs> that should be like rated at least PG-13, if not rated R. But essentially... You know, what happens here is there's two cities um, and they're super, super sinful. And these two angels come down and they stay with Lot and his wife. And they they basically because of the sinful nature of these two cities, God rains down sulfur on those cities um, and, and, and obliterates everyone and, and tells Lot to get out of the city. And God and Lot begs, can I go to this adjacent city? And so, so the angels say, okay. Um, and, and so I think the, the, that seems to us, or at least to me, that seems unfair, yeah? You know, the, the wait a minute, everybody? Why did everybody have to die? Did everybody do something wrong? I mean, that doesn't seem right. Um, but... You know, that's just one example, right? You know, I think we can, we can think about that and say, well, you know, those were sinful cities. That's not Shreveport. 99% of people answer the phone here and say they're Christian. That, that wouldn't apply to us. Um, but, the, but the examples get more, you know, in that same chapter, you know, the, the angels are very clear. They say, look, when you leave, don't look back. Um, and Lot's wife looks back and what happens? Bang, she's turned to, she's incinerated, turned to a pillar of salt. Well, I mean, as the, as the egocentric, yikes, as the egocentric reader human, you know, what's our response to that? That's not fair. Um, I mean, all she did was look back. Um, but, but that, that shows you how separate we are from where a holy God is. Um, and, and the examples go, they go on and on, you know, the, the one that I did not that I did not know um, was in Numbers chapter 15. Um, th- there's there's a, just an anonymous man walking along picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And so he's caught by the priest picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And so the priests appeal to God, hey, what do we do? You know, this guy's working, if you will, on the Sabbath. And so, you know, as the reader, you think, well, you know, you have this visual of Jesus and the children. Let the children come to me. And you think, well, he's going to say, Oh, don't worry about it. You know, it's like the rice uh, or, or the chaff, and, and you know, it's not that big a deal. He's just picking up sticks. So that's not what happened. You know, God said, "Stone him," and they did. 
And, and, and so, again, you know, you leave these examples thinking, wait a minute, that's not the God of love. That's not the, that's not the God that we know. Um, but, and, and so then I think, or at least for me, what my mind goes to at that point is, well, that's the Old Testament, right? I mean, that's before Jesus. There's bound to be something in the loving work of Jesus that keeps that kind of stuff from happening. I mean, a lot of people work on Sunday. You know, hospitals are open on Sunday. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a sin, right? Um, but I, I don't think that that holds up, you know, because if we look in Acts chapter 5, we run into Ananias and Sapphira, right? And so I don't know the exact details, but they had made some type of sale. Um, and so then they were... Um, giving their offerings. Um, and, and as a result of that sale, there was a little bit like there is a lot of times about money, a little change in like this, and maybe it costs a little less. And so they, so Ananias comes in first and the priest asks him, look, are you sure this is the right amount? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure dead. And so you're like, Whoa. And so then Sapphira comes in, you think, well, maybe they'll give her a break or, you know, or, or whatever. And, they do the same thing. You know, she's a little unclear on how much it was and how much they tithed and whatever. And then, bang, she's dead too. And so, um, I'm not telling this to be Debbie Downer. That, that's, not my, that's not my purpose here. But the, I think to truly, I think we need some humility in how we approach God. And how and, and Isaiah needed it too, because truly we have to visualize ourselves as undone, right? We're disheveled. We're we're sinful because I think we think too much, or at least when I say we, I mostly mean me. Um, we think of sin in terms of man, right? What, what did we do? What did how did what we did affect um, affect someone else? But I think a a good way to think about this is. The sin can often be measured by who you sinned against, right? So if you, you know, the, the, it's a little cliche, but if you sin against a rock, the consequences of that sin are limited. If you sin against your brother, that's significant and needs restoration. But that is completely different, separate than the sin against a holy God who... The, the consequences of that sin are infinite. I mean, you don't have to go any further than Genesis chapter 3, right? You know, the, the, where Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge. You know, the, the consequences of that sin have been from that day to this. And I mean, I don't know what was in the... I mean, it's depicted as an apple. I don't know what was in the apple, but surely that doesn't seem... That seems completely ludicrous, right? Um, but I think it's because we're... We just don't see ourselves as separated from God as we are. And if we don't see ourselves as separated from God as we are, then we can't really appreciate the atoning work of Christ and, and what, what Jesus has actually done for us. You know, it becomes contrite um, and it becomes not as significant. And things like... Um, LSU football games or, or, or fishing or golf or, or days at the lake or whatever, they, they, they take up all of our passion. And this becomes a, you know, something we do because we have to, right? I mean, what are, you, what are you supposed to say in Shreveport when you go to lunch after or, or when you go to lunch on Sunday at noon? You're supposed to say, you're supposed to look like you just went to church, right? 
And so uh, don't, this shouldn't be a cultural obligation that we have. This should be an act of reverence. It should be an, uh, an opportunity to worship a holy God who loved us so much that he sent his son to, to bridge this gap between a holy God and a sinful man. Um, so when we go to the third part of this uh, verse, we see um, the the we see what happens with one of the seraphim, and it says, "Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold." This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So that that represents or is symbolic of Christ coming from heaven down to earth to take away our sins. Just like this coal is taken from the altar um, below the throne of God and used to cleanse us. And so the the that's what's just taken place here. Um, and so... What does that mean? You know, they had had this, um, they had had this um, uh, sacrificial system in place where, you know, you sacrifice the, the first goat and then once a year on the Day of Atonement, you take the lamb or the, the goat out into the, the wilderness and you let it go. And as it's representative of your sins going away, you know, they, they had had all that stuff up until this point um, before Jesus was sent. But what happens here to Isaiah with this cleansing of his sin is the same thing that happens to us when we accept Christ as our Savior. You know, all of a sudden, we're um, completely restored. Um, and so that, that doesn't seem fair, right? I mean, that, that, it, that seems impossible. David Platt described it as scandalous. I mean, that, that can't be right, um, but it is right, and they and um, I think John MacArthur used this example of um, the 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 rich man who bought the Rolls Royce automobile. Like when Rolls Royce, I guess when they first started making cars, they their catchphrase was "These cars never break down." Right? They they they're really expensive, but they never break down. And so this guy buys this car. He's traveling throughout Europe. He's over in um, uh, France, and you know. Guess what happens? The car breaks down. So he calls the Rolls-Royce company and says, listen, you know, this car you said was never going to break down. It broke down. And so they say, listen, no problem. Just stay right there. And they, they put a mechanic on a plane. He comes straight out there. He fixes the car. The guy goes on his way. Um, and so then he goes home um, and, and he decides, listen, I've got to get this paid for. And so he calls the Rolls-Royce company and says, listen, I haven't got anything uh, I hadn't gotten a bill from you guys. It's not common to send a mechanic on a plane. Um, you know, what's, I, I need to pay this and get this taken care of. And the, you know, Rolls Royce responds, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. You know, we, we don't have any record of that car ever breaking down. And so it's kind of a silly example, um, but it's what Christ did for us, right? So, we're a sinful people. Isaiah was a sinful person. Even the seraphim who are blazes of glory that in God's honor can't look upon him. 
Um, but yet, despite that, we're restored um, by the work of Jesus Christ. And, and that, that should motivate our actions beyond football games, Little League basketball games, work, money, wh- whatever it is that motivates us, that should be the motivation that, that, that is beyond all other. Um, if you read the very next verse uh, from Isaiah, he says, um, well, the Lord says first, and I heard the Lord or heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. Um, and, and that's, that's my fourth point as we um, kind of run short on time. A high view of God and a humble view of the gospel inevitably leads to an urgent view of mission. So what does that mean? That just means mission projects where you go to the Sudan? No, that means work in your row. You know, whatever it looks like, whatever God is calling you to do, where he's planted you in the workplace, in the, the, as a stay-at-home mom, as a professional golfer, as the leader of a, of a uh, school, whatever, wherever he's planted you, he's call, the, the impact of God being holy, you being, or us being uh, sinful, and Christ bridging that gap, it should impact us. You know, I, I think of our, I go to Nicaragua every year. Um, and it's, a, it's an amazing trip. Like such a blessing that when I get back on the plane, my face hurts because I've been laughing so much and smiling so much. So it's very, it's very self-gratifying in some ways. But what we do there is we do, uh, we, we, tell people about Jesus and, and we meet basic needs and we do knee replacements while we're there. And the ironic thing about that is every year when it's time to go, I don't want to go. Okay, I've been like eight times. And each year when it comes up on the calendar, I'm like, man, I don't have time to go. I've got too much stuff to do. You know how expensive this is? I, I, don't, I don't have time to go. And it's, it's, it's totally crazy. Right? It's totally crazy that I would have that disposition. But but I do. And, and and I think if we really think about even the good works that you've done, even the mission minding mission minded projects that you've had up until this point, um, I don't know that my motivation is what it should be. Um, the Tozer wrote a, wrote a book on this topic, and I'm going to borrow a quote from him. Um, and, and I think if you listen closely to it, I think I, find it, I found it very convicting. And so, you know, think of, you know, what you've done that you're proud of for the Lord. Um, and, and, and then think about, okay, does this, does this quote apply to me? Um, he says, An almighty God, just because he's almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to... 
believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is not greater for our being, nor would he be less if we did not exist. That we do exist altogether is of God's determination, by God's determination, not by our desire nor divine necessity. Probably the hardest thought of all for our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. We commonly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. Too many missionary appeals are based upon the fancied frustration of an almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity on his listeners, not only for the heathen, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. I fear that thousands of younger persons enter Christian service with no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Add to this a certain degree of commendable idealism and a fair amount of compassion for the underprivileged, and you have the true drive behind much of Christian activity today. Um, unfortunately, I think that describes me, and I think that describes a lot of us. You know, as we, as we think about how we divide our time, as we think about how we divide our energy, and as we think about how we divide our money, um, it's super, super humbling in a people group that is affluent and essentially has no basic needs that are not met and probably overmet. And certainly in our case, we have way more than we need. It's super, super humbling to think God doesn't need us. It doesn't matter to him if you're on his team or not. He's going to, his goal is going to be accomplished. And that is a humbling reality to think about. So when we, when, as the people of Norse Ferry, you know, when we, when we have a building campaign for a new sanctuary and for more um, room for, for the children, it doesn't matter if you give to it or not. God's plan is going to be accomplished. It doesn't matter next year if I go to Nicaragua or not. God's plan is going to be accomplished. But ultimately, we should give and I should go because the way Christ has connected a sinful me as the sinful man with a holy God, it's praiseworthy. It's money worthy. It's time worthy. And it should be an overflow of my heart, if, if I truly under or have some understanding of the holiness of God and, and approach the, the reality of the gospel with humility, there's no other logical conclusion than to, to carry that out to the ends of the earth. There's no other logical conclusion Conclusion than being involved in the process, um, and so that's that's what I was convicted with initially. That's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for my family, and that's my prayer for the people of Norse Ferry. Yeah, we have a lot, but to whom much is given, much is expected, and I think most, if not all, of us 
fall in that category. So uh, let us let me pray for us in our time. Lord, um, thank you for the opportunity to meet today. Um, thank you for your word. Thank you for its boldness. Um, just help us approach you with the reverence that we should have. Um, we're, we're a long way from angels on fire for your glory. Um, but help us, help us realize that just because you're so far away, that makes the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that much greater. Um, that ultimately you loved us so much that you sent your son for us. Uh, and to bridge that gap which seems unbridgeable. Um, help that impact us. Don't just let us say, wow, what a neat biblical truth and walk back into our lives like unaffected. Um, help that impact our actions. Help that impact where we spend our time. Help that impact our disposition. Um, help that impact everything that we say and do. Um, because ultimately, it's about your glory. Um, and it's about us being in a position of serving a holy God. Um, and what a blessing it is that you love us so much that you sent Jesus so that we could spend eternity with you. Uh, we ask these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.